0: Hi, I'm Kathleen McCabe, and I am a cataract and refractive surgeon on the west coast of Florida. And I had this complex cataract, a case of traumatic sublux cataract, that I would like to share with you. These are my financial disclosures. This was a delightful lady who came to see me. She's 73, and she came to see me five months after she had blunt trauma to her left eye. And she was complaining about decreased vision in both eyes, but had noticed significant and accelerated decrease in vision in her left eye since that had occurred. And what happened is somebody was tossing her a set of keys and they hit her in the left eye. And she had a pretty big black eye. She looked through all her pictures to try to send me one that was really bad, but couldn't find it. Um, on examination, her best corrected visual acuity is decreased in both eyes, as you can see. It was 2070 in her right eye. 2,200 in her left eye. Her pressures were normal at 9 and 11. The remarkable part of her exam was really her left eye, where there were 360 degrees of iris transillumination defects, a traumatic medriasis, and more than 180 degrees of a zonular dehiscence superiorly. Her lens was quite wiggly with phacodenesis and about the same cataract in each eye. Her dilated fundus exam was normal in both eyes with a normal cup to disc ratio ratio 0.2, and her OCTs at the macula, nerve fiber layer, and her endothelial cell counts were normal in each eye. You can see her macular OCT on the right here. So pre-op assessment with a traumatic cataract really includes a complete history. It's very important to know how quickly the cataract worsened. If you see quick onset of a white cataract, You wanna suspect that there is violation of the capsule. If it's anterior, many times there's a lot of fluffy white material in the anterior capsule, so you get an idea that's what's occurred, but sometimes there's no evidence of that, and you may not be able to visualize the posterior capsule, so be suspicious of that as well. You wanna look for movement of the lens. If it's decentered, you can sometimes see that it's tilted. Is the equator visible? Can you see if there's any scalloped margin, for instance, where zonules have been disrupted. Are there iris translumination defects or posterior sonechea? Is there vitreous in the interchamber? And if there is, then the area of most vitreous is often the area of zonular dehiscence. A characteristic pattern, this stellate pattern that you can see in the image on the upper right, um, that is typical of a traumatic cataract. Gonioscopy is also important to see if there's angle recession and an increased risk of a high IOP in the future, if there are peripheral anterior synechiae, And again, you can sometimes only see that scallop margin of the capsule on gonioscopy. Anterior segment OCT can be invaluable. And you can see here, this is actually our patient. We'll look at this further in just a moment. But there is quite a tilt in the lens itself. And if we look more closely, there's a difference in the amount of space between the iris margin and the anterior lens capsule on the left versus on the right where they appear to be touching. So this lens is significantly tilted as well. OCT of the macula and optic nerve are important. If, if you do see a decrease in the nerve fiber layer, getting a visual field test can be helpful as well. And then endothelial cell count helps you to know how, how much you need to be worried about further damage to the endothelium and how important it is to protect that during your surgery. So the surgical plan really involves being prepared. Number one, it's nice to also involve your staff, let them know this is a complicated case, that you're gonna have several tools immediately available in the operating room. You wanna choose appropriate anesthesia. These cases can be quite complicated and involve manipulation of the iris, which can be uncomfortable for the patient. If the patient may be doing large body movements or head movements, a retrobulbar isn't going to be enough to make them comfortable and safe. So general anesthesia is an option, and rarely is topical, um, uh, rarely is topical anesthesia the right choice for these case, cases. You want to be careful to do an atraumatic central and, and circular curvilinear rexus. Bimanual manual techniques with micro instrumentation are helpful. Um, I prefer to use a femtosecond laser because then I know it's the appropriate size and centration. Only if you can't visualize it well enough will I do something different than femtosecond laser. You wanna have several plans in place for IOL well placement. Plan A, which is what I prefer to do, is always for me going to be a possibility of retaining the capsular bag. So for this patient, it would be retain the capsular bag, support the capsule with hooks during surgery and perhaps a capsular tension ring or capsular segments for long-term stability. Plan B might be place a three-piece IOL in the sulcus and hopefully with optic capture if the integrity of the anterior capsule allows for that. And plan C might be a sutured IOL, a sutured IOL in the sulcus, so we want to have calculated for that. You want to be prepared for possible anterior vitrectomy have a vitrectomy kit available in the operating room and or allow your staff to know exactly where that is. And intraocular steroids and antibiotics are important for the post-operative period. So on the right is the Iowa Master for this patient. You can see that there's been a calculation for sulcus placement of a lens, for a capsular placement of a single piece hydrophilic acrylic lens. There's also a backup anterior chamber lens and there's a backup three-piece intraocular lens as well. Here's our patient. So in the femtosecond laser, we get a closer look at what's going on between the pupillary margin and the equator of the capsule. And there is a space that you can visualize here where we can see the margin of of the pupil and the margin of the capsule and a brighter red reflex between the two. We can use the settings on the laser to alter where the linear scan is and if we put it on the area where we see that maximal zonular dialysis, that's the image that allows us to visualize the lens tilt and that separation between the margin of the pupil and the lens. So we're going to look at this video of the femtosecond laser and you can see initially the lens orientation looked very planar and did not look like it was tilted. So I'm changing the orientation of that linear scan. And here now it is oriented where there is that maximal tilt and we can appreciate better the fact that the lens is not sitting planar in the eye. I'm comparing those two areas. I'm telling my staff about that so that they're also prepared for what we might need during surgery. So this is our patient and the intraoperative view. And you can see here that there's a margin visible between the pupil and the equator of the capsule, where there are those scalloped margin there, and a little bit of an increased red reflex. And I'm trying to determine where the area of maximal dislocation is, because that's where I'm gonna put my fixation system. So once I've determined where that is, I will go ahead and mark two millimeters posterior to the lumbus, I have a 27-gauge needle, and I've previously cut a piece of 5.0 proline with a bevel, and I'm just trying that within the lumen of the needle to make sure it passes. I'm using low-temperature cautery to create a large flange, and I've already passed, and you can see here, I've already passed that 5.0 proline through the eyelet of an Ahmed segment. And I'm gonna actually really test that and make sure that the flange is large enough that it won't pull through the eyelet. This is going to be the support system intraoperatively for the area of maximal zonular dialysis. And it's also going to be the same support system postoperatively. So we're gonna go ahead and remove the capsule centrally. This capsule recess was already created by the femtosecond laser. Usually these come off very easily but even that little bit of traction between the capsule and the cortex dislocates the lens even further, so you can see how weak those zonules are. I'm placing a capsule hook to help prevent it from, uh, for us from losing the lens into the vitreous. Now I've placed the 27-gauge needle through conjunctiva and sclera, two millimeters posterior to the limbus, through the sulcus, which I inflated with viscoelastic, I've placed that cut piece of 50 into the anterior chamber and I'm using a micro to carefully feed that into the lumen of the 27 gauge needle. You really wanna be sure you put enough of the 50 in that it's not gonna pull out as you're withdrawing the needle. And I'm gonna assist it a little bit with the micro forcep. So I can look now at the surface of the conjunctiva confirming that I did withdraw the cut end of the 50 Microforceps are helpful for introducing the capsular tension ring into the interchamber. Sometimes it's a little hard to get that flange in. And then I'm going to cinch it up a little bit by externalizing more of the fibroproline and then carefully positioning that into the equator of the capsular bag in that area of maximal zonular dialysis. So it's a good thing we have that capsule hook in already. I'm gonna place a second capsule hook to help support that margin, the inferior margin of the capsule as well. I've created a flange at the surface in order to support the capsule tension ring. And now we're going to go ahead and remove the lens. And it's a pretty soft lens in this case. So we want to keep the bottle height or the IOP settings very low. There's low flow and very low vacuum. So you're not going to aspirate the capsule. And frequent reinstallation of a dispersive viscoelastic we want to keep the bag inflated as much as possible so that there's re- less risk of a floppy bag and aspirating that into the port of the FACO handpiece. And You can see here it's deflated. We still have support though with the capsule tension ring and as soon as I reinflate it with a dispers- dispersive viscoelastic, the capsule tension ring goes back into the equator supporting that margin. Sometimes FACO isn't even needed. In this case I'm using the visco elastic to loosen up the remaining portions of the, of the nucleus as well as the cortex. And I have an infusion going in and then sort of allowing the pressure of the infusion and that dispersive viscoelastic to burp out through the main incision, the remaining parts of the nucleus as well as the cortex that's free already. And that keeps the posterior capsule away from any aspiration tip. I'm going to put in the capsule tension ring now. I'm using not just three hands of my own, but I'm holding a in my left hand through the eyelet, the leading eyelet. I'm stabilizing the inserter and my assistant is pushing the plunger steadily and slowly. You want to make sure that both ends, both eyelets actually go into the capsule bag if it engages the margin of the capsule that can be a little bit difficult to disengage atraumatically. Sometimes it's a little hard to do the cortical stripping when there's a capsule tension ring in, so I'm really carefully observing whether or not there's any stria developing in the posterior capsule so that I know for sure I haven't engaged it. And if you're patient and go slowly and kind of wiggle the uh, aspiration around near the capsule hook, you can be successful in removing all of the cortex atraumatically. You can see I really did engage it for a second there. So I was able to go with plan A. This is the single piece hydrophilic acrylic lens. I like this in this case. It's a large lens. It expands the bag well. And those closed loop eyelets are another possibility for a fixation technique, either with 5060 proline or even Gore-Tex in the future if there's a further dislocation. I'm going to remove the capsule tension rings. This can be kind of tricky sometimes. So bending or pushing the end of the uh, hook towards the cornea and then sort of backing out the remainder with a forceps works very well. They're not as flexible as iris hooks. In this case, there were some strands of vitreous that came around the margin of the capsular bag and so I'm using a bimanual technique, um, making sure that I maintain pressure in the anterior chamber through, by using this through the paracentesis and not the main incision. And I'm gonna remove all the visible vitreous there very carefully and then use triamcinolone to stain in the anterior chamber looking for any remaining strands of vitreous. This works really well and has the added benefit of leaving some triamcinolone in the posterior segment which helps with inflammatory uh, issues postoperatively. So you can see here I'm keeping the port of the vitrector up so that there is no risk of engaging the margin of the capsule, I'd be sad after all this work. I like this little wiggle technique to see the stability of the lens, and you can see it's very, very stable, a little bit more uh, triescence, just confirming that there's no vitreous there, and checking on the pressure in the interchamber. This patient did very well. That's the conclusion of the surgery, so we're going to see how she did postoperatively. So surgical pearls for a traumatic zonulopathy, at least of this magnitude, during your surgery Number one, size and centration of the anterior capsulotomy is important. You want to use capsule hook segments and a CTR. You might need to actually plan on placing the IOL in the sulcus with optic capture. And actually, a technique of putting the CTR in the bag and the IOL in the sulcus with optic capture is something I've used many times in third world settings when I don't have all the tools I need otherwise. And there are published reports of great stability long term with that technique as well. You want to minimize sculpting and rotation. So low flow, low trauma situations in the eye with careful hydrodelineation. The IOP should be set low or the bottle height low. Aspiration should be low and vacuum should be low. So you want things to move slow in these situations so that if anything is moving differently than you want, you can add additional dispersive viscoelastic to reinflate the bag and keep the posterior capsule away from the port of either your INA or your vitrector, or your vitrector if you need that, or the phaco handpiece as well. Intraocular triamcinolone is also important. It allows you to check for vitreous in the inter- chamber, and it, it leaves some steroid behind for the postoperative period, as well as intracameral antibiotics to prevent endophthalmitis. So here's our patient one week postoperatively. She's comfortable, she's happy. There is a little bit of traumatic medriasis left. You can see that the iris is a little bit bigger in one side. Her uncorrected distance visual acuity in her right eye is 20-20. It's 20-25 minus two in her left eye and you can see her macular OCT there. When she looks down and we elevate her upper lid, all you see is that very small blue button uh, that is on the conjunctiva there. And that is the flange for the capsular retention segment that we placed earlier. So this patient is doing really great and she's very, very happy with her vision. So for sutured Ahmed segments, I like to use larger gauge proline suture, 5 proline suture through the eyelet. It's important to create a large flange that won't pull through the eyelet with low temperature cautery. Place the capsular retention ring in the entry chamber either at the end of the case, as has been published already and shown by Sergio Canabrava, or prior to taking out the lens, as I showed here in a novel technique. Um, you want to use a 27-gauge needle, place that through the conjunctiva and sclera two millimeters posterior to the limbus in the area of the maximum zonulopathy, through the sulcus, into the anterior chamber, where you're then going to thread the cut end of the 5-0 suture that's in the CTR, but the other end into the 27 gauge needle lumen, withdraw the, new, the needle through conjunctiva and grasp that at the surface of the eye, adjust the tension to support the capsule and create another flange. That second flange does not need to be very large and it should be fully buried into the superficial layers of the sclera to minimize the risk of that being exposed in the future and increasing risk of endophthalmitis. These are my references. Thank you so much for your attention.